Amen. Well, church family, it's good to be with you. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Let's pray once again. Those of you at home on Sunday morning, those of you here Thursday night, gathered in the Lord's name now as we come to the word. Let's pray. So, Father, how good it is to be able to sing Christ, our hope in life and death. He is our joy. He is the very measure of our lives. Would you now be with us as we come to your word, we come underneath its authority, believing that all that it teaches is true and good. Would you allow us to receive its instruction tonight as an act of mercy and grace. We love you. Pray for my my church family now, and those joining us, that um, if it's been a long day or a, a rough start to the morning, that you would now minister peace, as you said in this book that we're gonna begin to look at now tonight, that you have a peace that passes understanding to give. Pray that you would minister and speak through your spirit joy into their hearts as you call for in this book, rejoicing of your people in your name. Pray that you give those things so they might treasure you more, Christ. We love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, church family, would you thank the team as they led us in worship tonight? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians as we begin a new series coming out of the summer where we have been talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and an examination of what love looks like. Now we're gonna do a study over the course of this semester up until Advent, which is about the beginning of December, end of November, beginning of December, where we're gonna talk, uh, walk our way through the book of Philippians. And what I wanna do tonight is to give you an overview of that book so that we might sort of set the table, if you will, or whet our appetites for what the book wants to teach and instruct us in. Now, how many of you have ever spent time thinking about the importance of something being at the center of something? Have you ever considered that? I mean, just think about this. Think about some important centers. Like your center of gravity is an important center because if you lose it, what happens? You fall over, right? So center, your central nervous system is important because if it doesn't work, you don't live, right? Things that are at the center are important. Or perhaps think about being the center of attention. If you get, make someone the center of your attention, you are giving them your undivided attention and showing them value and worth. Uh, and affection by doing that, by making the center of your attention. Or perhaps you like a little lighter fare. A Tootsie Roll Pop is only worthwhile because of what's at the, the center, right? How many of you remember the old Tootsie, Pop, Tootsie Roll Pop commercials? Like how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? The, the idea obviously being that what's at the center is what makes it worthwhile. It's worth the journey to get to the candy in the middle. But here's the one I find most fascinating, the sun. The sun, which is at the center of our solar system. A couple of facts about the sun. Did you know that the sun accounts for 99.8% of our solar system's mass? That's how absolutely massively big the sun is. Almost completely 100%. Just 1.2% of the mass of our entire solar system is not accounted for by the sun. We are on earth here 93 million miles away from the sun and yet its gravity holds not just our planet in orbit but all the planets of our solar system in orbit. So without its gravitational force at the center of our solar system, we'd all be in massive trouble uh, here on earth as well as 
in the other planets. It drives the seasons as we orbit around it. So we have winter and spring and summer and fall because of where we are positioned in relation to the center of our solar system. Our ocean currents, our weather, our climate are all dependent on the sun at the center of our solar system, just as God has designed it and where he has placed it. So here's the point. Whatever is at the center of something is usually an important thing. And as we come to the book of Philippians, what Paul is going to do is the author of the book of Philippians, this apostle Paul, he's gonna argue that what is it, what's true of the solar system is true of your life. What's at the center of your life is of greatest importance. And of course, his argument throughout this book is going to be that a Christ-centered life is the aim of every follower of Jesus. Not, not Jesus on the periphery of a life, not Jesus tangential to a life, not Jesus as a nice bonus add-on to life wherein you get eternal life after this life, but rather that all who call on the name of Christ should aim for a Christ-centered life. That's the message of the book of Philippians. Really the major driving idea throughout the entire book is that, that Christ is the center should be the center of our lives. Now, if you've been in church a little while, that's probably not new news, right? It, it, you're probably not shocked that you'd come to church tonight and hear, hey, Christ should be the center of our lives. But what Philippians does so beautifully and so well is it puts meat on the bone of that for us. It instructs us as to what that means. When we say Christ, a Christ-centered life, right? And I wanna make sure that we sort of hear that because I think we get used to saying a, a this-centered thing or a that-centered thing. Like it's, you know, we might talk about curriculum in school and we might talk about that it's centered around this idea or we might talk about uh, our exercise routine being centered around this kind of idea. And so we get a little bit, maybe that language gets a little lost on us. But I wanna make sure we understand that when the scriptures call us to a Christ-centered life, there's nothing else about which it is appropriate to say we should have our life centered around that. Even good things, the gospel itself, which is a great message, should not be the center of our lives because Christ, who has created the gospel and, and is the, the bringer of the gospel, the good news of salvation, he is the center, the person himself. Is, is, you with me? Does that make sense? And so the scriptures call us to a Christ-centered life. Now, as we begin to dig into Philippians, here's what we're gonna do tonight. I wanna give you five things that make up a Christ-centered life. That's, I just wanna walk you through the book. So we're gonna hit every chapter in the book tonight. We're not gonna hit every verse in the book, but we're just going to look at five things that Paul says throughout this book of Philippians make up a Christ-centered life. Now, as we begin that journey, and again, that's, that's to sort of set the table for us so that now over the next 10 or 11 weeks, as we examine this book, we sort of are mindful that what we're aiming at, our goal at the outset here, in the same way that we said in 1 Corinthians 13 in our examination of that, that our goal was that we might grow in love. Our goal is that we might grow in Christ-centeredness over these next 10 or 11 weeks. Let me tell you a little bit about the Philippian church because that's important to know who Paul's writing to, a little bit about this context. So Paul is writing from prison, probably in Rome. And so you need to hear that these are words coming from a man who is paying a great cost 
for the very things which he is writing. And so you can imagine the emotional sort of compulsion that he feels as he writes. Now, the Philippian church is special to Paul. The story of the founding of the Philippian church is in Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 15, just before he makes his way to what's called Macedonia, which is a, a region where Philippi, this city, was, uh, and he founds the church there. And before he makes his way there, there are these really interesting stories. Paul, if you're not familiar with this, he went on what we call three missionary journeys in sort of his career as an apostle. Right? God called him, and then he prepared him, and then he sent him. And in this, now we're in his second missionary journey. So he'd gone around and shared the gospel with people, and churches had been born out of that around uh, the, Asia, the Asia Minor area. But he had not yet made his way into sort of Greece and up towards into Europe. And in the second missionary journey, he was trying to revisit certain areas. And at every turn, there were these, there were these uh, blocks coming up. Paul talks about it. It's unique in the scriptures, these moments where Paul is really looking to go forward and share Christ with people and plant churches. And at every turn, either the spirit or some sort of man-made blockade seems to get in the way. And he keeps thinking, okay, we we're prevented from going here. And we're prevented from going there. And just in the middle of all that, like every door being closed, Paul has a vision one night. And he sees a person, a man from this region of Macedonia saying, come to us. Come to us and help us. And so Paul knows, oh, this is the door God is opening. And when he goes, the, the stories that sort of unfold as a result of him just saying, okay, God, if that's where you want us to go, we'll go. And so he ends up in Macedonia. He goes to Philippi. And some of you may be familiar with these stories. There's the story of Lydia, who is a more well-to-do woman who has been successful in business. And she seems prepared. It's almost as if God has just planted her right there so that when Paul shows up and he says, here's the message of the good news of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, she's ready to receive it. I mean, she's, she is just ready for it. And she is excited to be hearing the truth. And then in the very next verse, so, so you get this picture of this beautiful uh, response to the message of the gospel. But then Paul uh, and, and Silas get arrested and they're thrown in jail for some things that they, you know, some false accusations. And when they're thrown in jail then, God sends an earthquake. And through that earthquake, long story short, the jailer who thinks they must have all escaped, but they have stayed there, is about to take his life. And Paul says, stop, don't do it. Shares the gospel with him and he and his whole family are baptized. So there are these powerful movements of the spirit. And I share all that with you to say, those are the people to whom Paul is writing. He's writing to that Philippian jailer and his whole family. He's writing to Lydia, and there's this place of deep affection for them in his heart. And you're gonna see that in this book. It, it is a book where one of the realities coming out is just how much Paul cares for them. You're gonna get a deep sense of his love and his affection and his care and his desire for them to walk almost like a parent with their children feels, I want you to be well and to thrive and to walk in the truth. And I don't want bad for you, I want good for you. That comes through loud and clear in Philippians. So that's, that's our context now. So we're gonna look in depth at this semester together, this, these 11 weeks or so, at what a Christ-centered life looks like. But like I said tonight, we wanna talk about what are the marks of a Christ-centered life. Now, before I give you the five, let me make one more remark. I'm so glad for Philippians chapter three, verse 12 in this book, because I'm about to tell you five markers of a Christ-centered life, and I think you'll find that if you're honest with yourself, that you don't measure up in these things. And you'll say, oh, 
I can't, I can't legitimately claim a Christ-centered life because I'm not sure that I can claim that these things are present in my life, at least not to the measure that I want them to be. And the reason I love Philippians chapter three, verse 12, is because after proclaiming uh, some of these things about what a Christ-centered life entails, Paul says this in chapter three, verse 12. He says, not that I have yet taken hold of it, not that I am yet perfect or complete, but one thing I do, I press on, I press forward, right? So what, what is Paul saying? What he's saying to us is, even as I say to you tonight, church, in the more Sunday morning church, even as I say to you, this is what a Christ-centered life looks like, don't be discouraged where your life doesn't line up with that, but rather hear the call of God to move forward, to press forward towards a greater Christ-centeredness in your life. Wherever you may be today, press forward towards more, more of Christ at the middle, to move him from the periphery and into the center. Are, are you with me? I'm so glad for that because it reminds us that we have not yet taken hold of it. All right, so we're gonna begin in Philippians chapter three and we're gonna look at verses seven and eight. And here's the first trait or mark of a Christ-centered life. It's this, an unrivaled affection for Christ. An unrivaled affection for Jesus. Now when I say unrivaled, I mean that nothing compares to him in your affections, in your desires. Listen to what Paul says Chapter three, verse seven and eight. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Did, did you catch that? I count everything a loss. In other words, everything else amounts to nothing in comparison to the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians, above all, is a book about the supreme worth of Christ. Every other marker of a Christ-centered life is gonna connect to this first one. Unrivaled affection for the person of Christ who is supreme and reigns on high. Before anything else, to be Christ-centered, is to find nothing as valuable or as satisfying as knowing Jesus. It is to find nothing as valuable or as satisfying as knowing Jesus. Paul is commenting, and when we come to chapter three in our study, we'll see this more clearly, but he's commenting that all these things that used to, that used to in which he used to find his identity, that, that's where his value lay. And in fact, they're actually what made him successful in life. They're the things that gave him prominence. They're the things that put food on his table. They're the things that made him successful in navigating through the world. All those things, because he recognizes he was using them in opposition to Christ, they are now nothing to him. All the things he used to think made him, made him worthwhile. He now counts as nothing compared with the value of knowing Christ. That's, that's what he's saying to us. I can remember the first time, and again, this is in that vein of still not having taken hold of it, because I find that with every, with every turn in life, there's a new challenge to finding Christ to still be at the center of my affections, unrivaled in my affections. You think you've, you've sort of come to a place of mastery. Yes, I desire Christ above all things. And then you get married and, and your spouse, which is a good gift and a wonderful thing, but you have to ask, 
is that spouse now rivaling Christ in my affections? Or then you have kids and you think to yourself, what would happen if something happened to the kids? And, and you have to wrestle with these good gifts, these wonderful things in your life and ask, do they begin to rival Christ in my affections? I can remember the first time, the first time that I felt I could honestly say Christ was in some way, shape, or form becoming unrivaled in my affections. And it was, it was talking about this passage on a bus with a group of high school kids. And we were on this, uh, on this weird kind of youth retreat trip that we used to take where we'd kind of go all around these different spots in Florida on this bus. And we were driving and I had this group of about 30 high school kids and we're sitting there talking. And I was early 20s and single. You know when you're early 20s and single, the thing that you think is, I want Jesus to come back, but not before what? Not before I get married. I want you to come back. Just, just let me get married first. And I, I remember feeling that. I remember thinking that. And I remember having this discussion. And for the first time, I could say, I, these kids were asking me about it. And I said, honestly, I, I, couldn't, I would rather Jesus come back tomorrow than me get married. And it was the first time I felt I could honestly say that. And what's interesting is, it's, like I said, there's this there's this journey that you continue to have where you value these things, you want these things for your future or perhaps something that you have that you treasure and that you value. And it becomes a question of always asking, Christ, are you still unrivaled in my affections? And friends, can I tell you that the key to that is to taking every good gift that Christ gives you and turning them into fuel for affection for him. It's not, it's not not having those things. It's not denying the desire of those things. Rather, it's to see that those things come from him and to use them as fuel for worship of him in your life. So the first thing that we see, the first thing we see is that the first mark of a Christ-centered life is unrivaled affection for Christ. Now can I say today, ask this question of yourself, can I say today, can you say today that if everything was taken from me, my education, my job, my friendships, my parents, my spouse, my children, my home, my money, if all of that ceased to be today, would I find it sufficient comfort that I am Christ's and he is mine? It's a hard question to ask, but here's the thing, Philippians will challenge us now over the course of these next 10, 11 weeks, will challenge us to continue to move towards Christ-centered affections. The second thing that we see as the marker of a Christ-centered life is gospel ambition. Gospel ambition. We all have ambition in life. Paul's argument is that those who live a Christ-centered life don't just have unrivaled affection for Jesus, they also have ambition for the gospel and it's spreading to others that is a greater ambition than any other ambition in their life. The greatest ambition for a Christ-centered person is that the message of the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and through faith in him, eternal life for all who believe. That message going forward for the Christ-centered person above all things gets the attention of their ambition. That's Paul's argument. Look with me at Philippians chapter one, verse 12 and eight. So if you're in chapter three, just flip back probably a page or two and look what he says in these verses. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, remember he's in prison, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So get what he's just said. He said, look, I recognize that because I'm in prison, the the very people who imprison me are getting to hear the message of the gospel. They're getting to hear the good news, and that's enough for me. And not only that, but the brothers and sisters who are praying for me are becoming bolder because they're seeing that I'm okay. God has got me. He's taking care of me. No matter what it may look like, I'm, I'm okay, he's sufficient. And because of that, they're growing bold as they watch me make my way through this great difficulty, right? And so when he talks about this, this growth of the gospel going forward, he's, not, he's talking in, sort of in two ways. One, about new people hearing and responding to the good news of salvation in Christ, but also that the gospel grows in the heart of the believer, the person who's already a believer. His ambition is not just to reach the new person, it's that the person who is already reached would grow in their boldness, grow in their desire to spread the gospel. So he has gospel ambition. And then look what he says in verse 15 and following. So just the last couple verses here. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, if I'm writing this letter, my next sentence is, those people, you need to silence them, you need to stop them, you need to shut them up, you need to deal with them. But not Paul. What does he say next? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Do you see his gospel ambition, church? Do you see it? He's so ambitious for the gospel that he can say, look, whether I'm in prison, whether I'm out of prison, you know, whatever the condition may be, even people who are seeking not my good, they're seeking to belittle me or, or make me less. If they're proclaiming Christ, I'm content. I want the gospel to go forward so much that I'm less concerned about other things. Paul views every circumstance in his life through the lens of how the gospel might be advanced because of it. And if it is advanced, then he is content because he doesn't have an ambition greater than his ambition for other people to know Christ. I'm gonna say that again, church. Paul has no ambition in his life higher than the ambition that other people through his life would come to know Christ. Now here's, I think this is one that challenges. I think it's gonna challenge us now as we go through the book of Philippians because we are good, I think, at segmenting our lives out. And thinking about our work life and our home life, our family, and thinking about perhaps our hobby, our life of hobbies, and thinking about, you know, whatever the categories are. We're good at segmenting those things out, and we have this section in our life for the gospel. We have this section in our lives for uh, ministry, where we think about, hey, I, I go and I teach this Bible study, or I teach an awesome adventure, or the, the children's ministry, or I deliver meals Um, or I'm a part of New Hope, I volunteer with them, and those are all very good things, right? But we seem to see our gospel work as one segment of our lives, and these others sometimes, sometimes, seem to remain untouched by gospel ambition. And so we have this ambition over here for our work life, we have this ambition for our family life, and then we have this gospel ambition over here, but if we're honest, perhaps those are competing ambitions. And friends, what the book of Philippians is gonna call us to is to say, let this ambition overlay all the other ones. 
let this ambition come over, sit over, and overlay all of the other ones. Not necessarily to kill them, but to redirect them. And perhaps even to grow them stronger, but through a different lens. A couple friends I was thinking about when I was thinking about this kind of gospel ambition. I was thinking about two friends of mine, one Dean and another Jeffrey. And Dean is my friend who's maybe the most accomplished person I've ever met. Dean, with the running joke about Dean, he, I worked with him at the church I served at in Austin before coming here. And the running joke about Dean, he was, I think, 70 at the time, uh, was that there was no one he didn't know and nothing he hadn't done. And we, we celebrated his 70th birthday. And as a joke, we made like a, like a little trivia. Which one of these things has Dean not done? Right? And... And here were the options. These are all true things about him. Dean flew uh, a plane in Vietnam. Dean has owned his own airline. Dean has played basketball in the NBA. Dean uh, has been neighbors with several San Antonio Spurs when he lived in San Antonio. Dean has been a vice president for for American Airlines. And among those, we included the statement, Dean Uh, was in the astronaut program for NASA, thinking that that was the one that was untrue and that it would be kind of the joke, like, ha. He came up afterwards, he said, hey guys, I don't know if he totally got what we were trying to do. Maybe we didn't do a very good job. I wasn't actually in the astronaut program. I was just asked to apply for it. I was like, Dean, we had no idea about that. This is maybe the most accomplished man I've ever known. Somewhere around what what he would say kind of halftime of his professional career, He's one of the most gifted leaders, uh, one of the most skilled encouragers and managers I've ever had the privilege and pleasure of knowing and working alongside of somewhere around partway through his career. He just quit being a VP at American Airlines and decided that God was calling him to use his skills within the church. Now again, he was already gospel ambitious in the places where he was, but for him, God had redirected him then into the church. And can I tell you that I wouldn't be here as your senior pastor had he not done that because he ended up being my boss who then encouraged me and put me up for this job, put me up for this role, uh, said, I think, I think you probably have what it takes to perhaps be in this role. I'm forever indebted to Dean Rush for seeing a gos- having a, a lens for gospel ambition to impart all his skills that he had, that he had earned over many hard years of service in, in the business industry, in the marketplace, and then seeing that those were skill sets that he wanted to apply towards a gospel ambition. My other friend, Jeffrey, he, he works at Lowe's uh, in the lawn and garden department. And the thing I love most about Jeffrey, he's a very good friend, I love a lot about him. The thing I love most about him is his gospel ambition. He never stops sharing the gospel. It is almost a weekly occurrence for Jeffrey to get asked home by a customer at the Lowe's home and garden department because he's so invested in their life in the 10 minutes that he's helping them pick out a garden plant. And in those 10 minutes, they end up inviting him over for dinner because they want to continue the conversation that they've begun just over, you know, a hydrangea or whatever it is. It's an absolutely, and he's, it's an absolutely unique skill set. I've never seen anything like it, but I adore it because it's gospel ambition. Dean and Jeffrey, I think of all the time when I think about gospel ambition, the book of Philippians church is gonna, is gonna drive us towards greater gospel ambition in the next 10 to 11 weeks. And do you know why? Because when Christ is unrivaled in your affections, guess what becomes your greatest ambition? To spread the gospel, to share it with others, to build others up in it. The third thing that we see as the marker of a Christ-centered life is 
firmness in the truth, and I'm using Paul's word there intentionally. In the book, you're gonna see this word where he's gonna command them or implore them, stand firm. Stand firm in the truth that you have received. The person who is Christ-centered is not easily swayed or moved from what they, have, what they know to be true about Christ and as a result then what they know to be true about the world through the lens of who Christ is and what he's done. We're not swayed from what is true by what is clever. We're not swayed from what is true by what is emotionally moving, no matter how emotionally compelling it may be. Now that is not to say that the truth is not clever or not emotionally compelling, but it is to say that we are not moved away from what is truth by those things. Paul urges the Philippians in chapter one, verse 27, and in chapter four, verse one, urges them to stand firm in what they've been taught. Now, for the Philippians, what's happening is there's this group of people who are, who are trying to uh, redirect them in what they have learned about Christ. And in particular, what they're trying to do is to convince these people that they are not saved just by grace through faith, but they need to take on all these Old Testament Jewish traditions and laws. They need to obey them. They're called Judaizers, which is an interesting word, right? And he says, you need to take on all these Old Testament rituals, all the Old Testament laws, and obey them in addition to believing in Christ if you truly wanna be saved and if you wanna attain to some extra special sort of level of spirituality. And Paul is urging them, don't buy that for a second. Don't believe that. Add nothing to Christ. Add nothing to him. You are saved by grace through faith, and I want you to stand firm in that. And friends, we obviously live in a time where uh, there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the nature of truth, right? There's a lot of misunderstanding about the nature of the implications of something being true. And if it's true, then it's true for all, not just for some, and that we are not... Uh, our, our experiences in life don't dictate what is true, but yet God on high does. And what Paul is gonna urge us, and say, if you want a Christ-centered life, stand firm in the truth. And he's gonna give us some very specific things where he's gonna help us to see what it looks like to stand firm in the truth and to apply it. Because it doesn't just mean continue to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead. That, of course, is included. But it means more than that. It means see the implications of the gospel. See the implications of it. For them, it was the implications of what they were trying to be convinced to be taught. For us, it's the same thing. It's not the same temptation of false teaching, but there is and always will be in the world much false teaching that doesn't derive from the truth of the gospel of Jesus and, a, and the Christ-centered person is rooted in Christ in the truth of the gospel and learns how then to apply that into every area of life, in the way we think about education, in the way that we think about government, in the way that we think about our family lives, in the way that we think about sexuality, right? In every area of life, the gospel informs it and speaks to it and we stand firm in the truth no matter what the culture at large implores us to move towards. You with me? A Christ-centered life means standing firm in the truth. So we'll have the privilege then over the next, over this series of spending time thinking about that together. What does that look like? Of course, it implies a, more than a cursory knowledge of God's word and an ability to recognize sound teaching. Number four, fourth mark of a Christ-centered life 
is unity with other believers. This is gonna be a major theme throughout the book. He's gonna say, if you wanna be centered, a life that's centered around Christ, you need to be actively pursuing unity with other believers. Chapter two, verses one and two. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, there's the unity, having the same love, there it is again, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you see that? Same mind, one mind, same love. What he's saying to the Philippians is be united in the truth, under the truth, be united as people who stand firm together in it. In fact, often these two things throughout the book you will see, he says stand firm with one mind, stand firm Together, be united in standing firm. So these two things go together in the Christ-centered life that the Christian says, not only am I standing firm in the truth, but I'm unified in that standing firm with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now friends, is it fair to describe the times in which we are living as contentious? Yeah, I think so, right? And so to think about that, I, I just, I wanna encourage you now. I wanna challenge you to think about this. There are times where it is appropriate that believers would, would uh, move apart from one another. And, those, and that's a complex issue. There are times where that's the case, but what Paul is telling us is that the heartbeat of a follower of Jesus is to pursue unity, even at great cost. To always move towards that wherever and whenever possible. Not to move towards disunion, but to move towards union within the body. Because the Christian lives their life with this vision of the whole church of God across all generations gathered at his throne at the end. And with that being the case, the, the Christian, the Christ-centered person so captures that idea in their heart and in their mind that, that they pursue it. And what that leads to, what that leads to, friends, is it leads to not being quick to make bad assumptions, but being quick to make good assumptions about people, to give the benefit of the doubt. It means being quick to move towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Can I, can I ask you two questions that you can ask yourself? And I've been asking myself this, these, this week in this contentious time. Could I invite you to ask whether your attitudes and your actions reflect a desire to be unified with your brothers and sisters. Or, and my guess is you wouldn't, you wouldn't be actively agitated by or actively against being unified, but you might be indifferent towards it. You might feel apathetic about it and feel like it's more important. Something else is more important, right? Standing on some secondary issue, perhaps where you say this issue, I'm, I'm gonna take a stand on this issue and you're willing to disrupt unity for that. Can I just ask you, if we see here, let me, let me invite, go read through this whole book and see it, you'll see it, it's there. Stand firm in unity with one another. That as you see the call towards union with one another, can we ask the question whether our attitudes and actions reflect a desire to be unified or an indifference towards it? There is no Christ-centeredness without the pursuit of unity. Okay, number five, last one that we'll look at. The Christ-centered person is actively pursuing purity of mind and action. That's the last one that you're gonna see as you work through this book, purity of mind and action. That there is a disdain for what is crass and low and a love for what is pure. 
a love for centering the mind around pure things and disciplining it to go towards those things and a love for, for performing actions that are pure. Listen to what chapter two, verse 12 through 15 say. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now here comes the purity part. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There is an argument that Paul is putting forward for us that Christ-centeredness looks like a love for what is pure. It looks like a love for what is pure. And do you know why? Because the one we love most is pure. And what the Christ-centered person recognizes is the pursuit of purity is not an end unto itself. We don't pursue purity, moral purity, in our actions and in our thoughts. We don't pursue that. We don't shut our eyes to what is evil and wicked. We don't turn away from things simply because purity itself is our ambition. Christ himself is our ambition and Christ is holy. He is pure. And when we walk in purity, we get the treasure of further understanding and knowing our Lord, knowing who he is. That's why purity is valuable. That's why we pull ourselves away from that which is morally impure. Not to be uh, prudish or pietistic or holier than thou or self-righteous or any of those things, which will be what you are sort of um, labeled with, right? It, It will be what you are labeled with. But it's not for any of those things. The person who grows in purity also, by definition, because they're becoming more like God, also grows in love not in judgment of others, not in look how good I am and how stained you are. That is not the mark of the person who grows in actual purity of mind and of heart and of action. That person who's growing in that capacity will by definition grow in love. And our treasure, back to the very first thing, what above all things does it mean to be Christ-centered? It means for him to be unrivaled in our affection. And so we pursue purity Sir, purity of mind and of action because we want him. And when we walk in purity, we know him more closely, more intimately, more deeply. So friends, rest assured, you do not have to be a stick in the mud or have no sense of humor or act self-righteous in order to be pure. The most wildly energetic and alive people on the planet are also the purest people. Do you know that? They're also the purest people, those who have taken up the call towards holiness in Christ, and I want to be like them. Now, here's the thing. Let me say, for those of you who are joining us, and you're gonna, I I hope you'll join us throughout this series, but you're not a follower of Jesus, right? You may be at home, maybe here tonight, and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're thinking, okay, well, I'm not convinced I wanna live a Christ-centered life. Uh, You're talking to believers, Trent, and of course, I can understand why they would want to live a Christ-centered life. That makes sense. They've called upon his name, and they claim to be his followers. But that may not be you. You may be someone who is gonna maybe just join us for this journey to explore a little bit. And I'm so glad, I hope you will, stay with us. 
let me also say that one of the things the book of Philippians is gonna have for you and for those of you who are believers, but it's particularly for those of you who are not his followers yet, it's also not just gonna talk about what are sort of the requirements or the marks of a Christ-centered life. This book is also gonna tell you the benefits of it. It's gonna talk to you about the depth of relationship that comes out of pursuing gospel ambitions with other people and how deeply you get connected to them by doing that. And it's gonna talk about the kind of joy that settles into the heart, not circumstantial happiness, but joy that settles into the heart of the person who is Christ-centered. And it's gonna talk about the, the kind of hope that, that just buries itself in the heart of this Christ-centered person and produces a harvest of righteousness. And it's gonna talk not just about that, it's gonna talk about a peace that passes understanding, which, which serves like a sentry, like a guard around your heart and mind if you are Christ-centered. So he's gonna give us both the requirements of Christ-centeredness, this is what it looks like, but also, friends, the benefits of it, which I, I'd encourage you. I mean, if you're in Jesus, you're experiencing those. I trust you're experiencing those. And, and man, let's, we'll celebrate that together as we, as we investigate those. If you're not in Christ, just, just listen to those because essentially what they are is a promise from God to you that if you come into Christ and decide to put him at the center of your life and you, you respond to his offer to you to come to him, if you do that, these things will be yours. There's a humility and a peace and a joy. I mean, it, there, there's almost a list too long to give you Right, but we're gonna try our best over the next 10, 11 weeks, right? So friends, I hope you'll join us on this journey. Now, as we go through the book of Philippians, I'm excited to go through it with you. Uh, maybe at home, begin to read this in your time uh, as before you come to worship together. And in the weeks that come, we will worship the Lord together and see what it looks like to walk in a Christ-centeredness together and to grow in it. Let's pray, and then we'll sing to close our time in worship. Lord Jesus, we are your people purchased by your blood. We have been gifted your righteousness. We are yours. We don't wanna be anybody else's. So help us now. It's easy, Lord Jesus, it's easy to talk, and many do, in cliches about Jesus being on high and Jesus being the center and Jesus being lifted up and glorified. We don't wanna speak those things as a cliche. We want to grow in those things as a reality in our very lives. We want to grow in those things as a reality. So help us, help us, because we lack what we need unless you give it to us. And we thank you that you are faithful to give it. So now as we sing your praises, we talked about Christ-centeredness and you being unraveled in our affections. Would you stir up our affections more now as we sing to you? We've heard your word. Our right response is to give you glory. We wanna do that in song now. Receive our praises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.